So the question is, how do you make love last? Uh, not so much in marriage, but how do you make love last when it's in your relationship with God? What's the key to maintaining the health of your soul over the long haul? I want to wrestle with that this morning. Uh, we have just started a series on the book of Revelation. Last week, you got to hear Professor Matheson. I uh, hope you enjoyed him. Uh, for How many of you did he kind of shift your thinking about the book of Revelation? Yeah, good. Hopefully, that was the point. Um, I really appreciated a couple things he said, liked his whole message, but this notion that we often look at Revelation as a crystal ball and we're trying to figure out what's going on in the future and we want kind of a schema. He said that's, that's paganism. That's not the intent of the book at all. And, and then the other point I really liked is he said, you know, the book was written to these churches. They had to understand what it meant. Otherwise, it would be irrelevant to them. So if we want to understand it and apply it to our lives, we have to figure out what it meant for them. And once we've figured out what it meant for them, then we can apply it to us. And just the whole notion that the book of Revelation is something that we are to be obedient to uh, has kind of shifted my thinking about the book. So I'm actually looking for, I've never wanted to preach the book of Revelation. I got my arm twisted to do it this time. But after talking with Dave, I'm actually excited to work our way through and, and to really understand it and how it was understood at the start and how it applies to us. Um, to get the most out of it, you want to be in a small group. It's great to come and hear messages. That's important. But the way you integrate that into your life is through the context of community and relationships. So if you're not in a small group and you really want this to be transformative for you, I'd encourage you to sign up. You can uh, sign up in out in the hall, and there's extra books. I know we ran out of books last week. There's a bunch more this week. Um, Larry did an awesome job putting the book together, and Lane, who does our artwork, did a fantastic job laying it out. So you want to make sure you grab one of those. So we're at chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the seven visions that are given about the seven churches. This morning... We're going to look at uh, the vision given to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a port town, uh, very cosmopolitan, very busy place, about a quarter million people, 300,000 people. It was dominated by a cult, the cult of Artemis. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And that cult played havoc in that culture. Ephesus was a difficult place to live out your faith because of the cult of our Artemis. In AD 52, Paul visits Ephesus. You can read about that visit in Acts chapter 19. Um, he originally goes in there, meets some people who don't have the spirit, puts his hands on them, they get the spirit. He goes to the synagogue, begins preaching, preaches there for three months. They become obstinate, ends up in the town meeting hall of Tyrannus and has a, an incredible ministry there. In fact, begins working extraordinary miracles Amazing stuff is happening. People are coming to Christ. Radical transformations. We're told about sorcerers who are leaving their, their black arts and actually burning their books in a response to coming to Jesus. His ministry has so much of an impact that finally there's a riot 
Demetrius, one of the silver makers who's involved in idol making, uh, sees his business declining, doesn't like it, and he rallies all the other silver makers, and there's this huge riot because of the impact of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He leaves in about 55. In 60, he writes a, a book, a letter. Uh, we have it as part of the New Testament. The epistle to the Ephesians is the letter he wrote to the church there. Eventually, he sends Timothy as an apostolic delegate to work in Ephesus. And we have two books written to Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Uh, this is the church that Timothy is in when he receives those letters. Tradition tells us that the apostle John, we're not sure if it's the John who wrote the Revelation or a different John, but tradition would say they're the same one. He was an elder in the church of Ephesus. So this is a church that has a lot of spiritual heritage, a lot of spiritual input into it. Um, but now it is 40 years later, and Jesus has some things to say to his church. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 and see if we can grab a little bit of Jesus' perspective. You'll notice in these letters that there's a standard form. He talks to the angel. He identifies himself as the Christ, that he's in charge. And then he gives a commendation, uh, things that are going well in the church, uh, a challenge, things that need to be corrected, and then a solution and, and a warning. And this pattern is followed here. So he writes to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's, it's interesting to think that Jesus is walking in the midst of his church, in our midst. And he says, I know your works. In fact, he uses that phrase five times in talking about other churches. He, he in a sense, is in the midst of his church and he knows what's going on. And some of the things he sees in this church at Ephesus, he likes. Notice what he says. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. This is a church that was after it. They weren't just sitting in the pews. They were working. They were doing ministry. They're making an impact on their community. Uh, you know, they were trying to make a difference for the kingdom. They were busy. And they had a sense of endurance. Notice he says, I know your hard work and your perseverance if you... Jump down to verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and not grown weary. Not only did they work hard, but when the circumstances around them were difficult, and Ephesus was a difficult spot, when they got persecuted and, and, and the pressure came, they stayed at it. They didn't shrink away from their commitment to further the kingdom. Um, they persevered. They weren't fair weather fans. Uh, they were committed through thick and thin. That's a great thing in the church. So they're hardworking. They have endurance. And then he says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. This is a church that had standards. They were committed to holiness. It's not that they weren't gracious. It's just that they believe that, you know, if you came to know Jesus, that should cause some transformation in your life. And this journey of living differently. And they expected that to happen for people. So, so Christianity, their faith wasn't a game for them. It was to be changing who they were and how they lived. And they had a huge commitment to truth. Notice what he says. No, you cannot tolerate the wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. One of the big issues in Ephesus was false teaching. And apostles literally means sent ones. These are not the original 12. These were traveling teachers that would come and sometimes with mixed motives and sometimes with false doctrine. 
And the church of Ephesus was discerning. They had this huge commitment to correct doctrine. And they were able to discern when these apostles were off the mark. Um, now, if you and I visited the church at Ephesus, we would have been impressed. I mean, on the outside, they look great. They're working hard for the kingdom uh, through thick and thin. They're not getting down because of their circumstances. They're having an impact. Uh, they, they have high expectations and working towards those. And man, they are all after it when it comes to truth. They get it. They get it. We'd be impressed. Very impressed. But although they look good on the outside and they're good at the behavior of religion, there is something wrong on the inside. October 25th, 1999. Uh, Two-engine Learjet took off from Orlando, Florida, was heading to Texas, actually, to Dallas. It got over uh, Gainesville, was supposed to make a hard left in its flight plan, and it didn't make the left. Tower noticed, called them on the radio to tell them they were off course, but got no response. Plane was on autopilot and just kept flying. The tower kind of declared an emergency, and they got some jets in the air, and an F-16 was able to be close enough so that they could look in the cockpit of this Lear jet, and it was dark. In fact, the pilot of the F-16 said he thought that the windows had been iced over. There's nothing they could do. Those jets followed that Lear jet for about four hours, flew about 1,500 miles, finally ran out of fuel. The autopilot that it had been on clicked off. At that point, the plane began to descend quickly and to tumble and crashed into a field in South Dakota going about 600 miles an hour. There were six people on that Learjet. Probably the one that people are most familiar with is a man named Payne Stewart. He was a professional golfer. Maybe you remember the story. First, they weren't sure what happened, but finally they decided that somehow that cabin had developed a leak, lost its pressure. And when you lose pressure at a high altitude, over 30,000 feet, all the oxygen within the cabin is sucked out. And within a few seconds, without oxygen, the people inside become incapacitated. If you had been on the ground and had seen that jet overhead, you would have been impressed. I mean, Lear jets are cool. And this one was flying high and flying fast. You would have been impressed. From the outside, everything looked great. But on the inside, something was terribly wrong. Something essential was gone. That jet is like this church. Something's missing. They're good at religion but they're not so good at relationship. Look at what he says to them, his complaint. Verse 4, Jesus says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. 
To understand what's going on in Ephesus, we need to understand this little phrase, you've forsaken the love you had at first. The words in it are interesting. Forsaken is simply a word that means to, to leave, to, to let go. It's not something done to you. It's something that you do. These people had walked away from the love they had at first. And the word first can mean uh, priority, your, your most important love, or it can mean sequence. It can have a time reference. Sometimes this gets translated your first love, but I like the translation here. I think it's more accurate. I don't think he's talking about the priority as much as the sequence. The love that you had at the beginning, you've walked away. But 20 years ago, I preached this passage, and I, I understood it that way. And I thought when he talked about love, he was talking about that initial enthusiasm you have when, when you first come to Jesus. You know, that passion, that, that excitement, that emotion. And what he's telling them, hey, you guys have let that die. You need to gain that back. And as I studied this passage, uh, I decided, you know, I was wrong. I don't think that's what this passage means. Uh, for two reasons. This word love is the uh, Greek word agape. And one of the things you, you discover when you begin to research that word is it's not a word that is really speaking about emotion. Uh, we read that into it from our culture because love in our culture always has this emotional aspect. But this word speaks about a love that is centered in the will. This is a love of commitment. It, this is not a love of... It's not enthusiasm. It's not necessarily passion. It's something much, much deeper. One of the things I've learned is I'm not sure that God wants the enthusiasm because over time that enthusiasm deepens into something more centered, more full. Uh, and I think that God finds satisfaction in. So I don't think this is about regaining that uh, initial enthusiasm. I don't think he's talking about an emotional thing here. I think he's talking about something much deeper. The other conclusion I've come to is that when he uses this word love, he's not just talking about their love of God. It's interesting, when you look at love in the New Testament, love of God always gets linked with love of people. It's like they always go together. We, we used to have these hand motions around here where we talked about if you love God, you have to love people. And if you love people, you have to love God because the two are linked. And in the New Testament, they are. You can't love God and not love people. If you don't love people, then it's an indication you don't love God. And if you're going to love people, you need God's power to enable you to do that. And they're always linked together. You see this in Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus is is asked about what is the greatest command in the law. And he replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. We get that. But then he goes on, he says, this is the first and greatest. And the second is like it. It's like I have to get this in too because these two go together. It's a package deal. Love your neighbor as yourself for all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Or, or John chapter 4. Remember, this is John who was the elder in the Ephesian church. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love the brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So I, I think what Jesus is saying, look, you have walked away uh, from the love of me and others that you had at the beginning. 
Not the emotion, but the commitment. You have to wrestle with, well, what's that really mean? What does it mean to let go of your love for God? And what's it mean to let go of your love for people? I, I think one way to think about it is to understand that this uh, love is what I like to call a centered commitment. That, that love for God really is loyalty and allegiance. Love for God is giving him the preeminent place in your life. There used to be a Four Spiritual Laws pamphlet that had this cheesy drawing in the back with a little chair. said, this is the throne of your life and who's on the throne, you or God. And I thought, man, that's really cheesy. And the more I thought about it, it really is, but it's also really true. <laughs> There's a place in our lives at the center and what we put there, who we put there, controls our decisions, and our thoughts, and our actions, and our behavior. And, and loving God simply means that we allow God to have that place. We put Christ on that place of control in our lives. And when we, we let that go, it doesn't mean we kick Jesus out of our lives. It just means we kind of nudge him to the side kind of becomes a bolt on Jesus. He no longer has the place of preeminence. And I think that's what he means that you had at the beginning. I think about what happened to these people. This sorcerer in Ephesus, I mean, his whole life was about controlling the, the, the supernatural world the dark arts and he was skilled at it. and then he has this confrontation with Paul and he learns about this Jesus this other king and he, he believes that this Jesus is reality so what happens he, he walks away from his life this is how he made his income this is how he gained notoriety and authority and it was everything and, and instead he, he puts Jesus there so much so he even burns his scrolls that's what it means to love God giving him that place of allegiance And that's always the struggle in the Christian life. Keeping Jesus first. I like what Augustine says about this. He, he says that the essence of sin really is disordered loves. Disordered loves. And, and he writes this on Christian doctrine. He kind of got to read it a few times to not get lost in it. But, but read it with me. He says, but living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. To love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. A little confusing, but his point is, look, there's an order. And what he's saying is at the top of the order, the thing we need to love most is God himself. And when he slides from that place and we put something else there, that's the essence of sin, which is really interesting because we always think of sin as this evil activity we go do. But, but he's saying, you know, really good things, uh, temporal things, when they become ultimate things, uh, can become bad things. And that's the challenge. To not let Jesus become simply a bolt on to our life, kind of 
He's there, but he's not really all that important. He's no longer controlling the decisions and the values and the priorities and the objectives. And the, he's not, no longer controlling life. He's just, just there. That's the problem. That's leaving your first love. Allowing something else to become more important. Well, what's it look like when you talk about letting go your love for others? Well, the Ephesian church was very, very committed to truth. And what happened to them is that truth became more important than people. Being right became more important than getting along. It all became about correct doctrine. Someone wrote that they kind of had a harsh orthodoxy. And truth is a great thing. Correct doctrine is a great thing. But, but sometimes we forget that correct doctrine and truth are connected to God and others. And that's what makes them important. You want to have correct doctrine so you have an accurate understanding of who God is. Because if your understanding of who God is is wrong, then you end up worshiping an idol. So doctrine isn't important in and of itself. It's important as it connects to God. It's the same in life. Truth is important in life because you want to line up your life in a way that reflects the reality that God has created. Because when you live in a way that's not in accordance to his reality, you destroy yourself. You hurt yourself. So, so we want people to believe the right things, not for the sake of the right things, but for the sake of how they live. In other words, doctrines always connected to God and others and our love for them. Always. But all that became second. Here's a church that is really, really good at religion. But not so good at relationships. Not so good. So what happened? <laughs> I mean, the, the Ephesian church had great input. I mean, they're founded by Paul. They, they receive his letters. They had Timothy. John was one of their elders. What, what happened? We don't know. We're not told. I'm going to tell you my best guess. I could be wrong on this. But I think here's what happened. It's what I call spiritual entropy. Entropy is the notion that over time, things degrade. Over time, things deteriorate. Over time, things move towards chaos. It's kind of like if I had a bundle of marbles, you know, just a whole bunch of marbles, and I just dropped them on the floor. The chances are they're not going to land in lines. Right? Entropy. Chaos. You want to see entropy at work? You just go down this hall, hang a right at the second hall, and go into my office. And there you'll see entropy. It's chaos unless I take a lot of energy to bring order to the chaos. This church has been around for 40 years. There is no autopilot for your spiritual lives. You just can't coast. 
either you put energy into cultivating the relationship or Jesus begins to lose his importance. That happened to them. Things began to decay spiritually. I, I realized this week as I was thinking about this and thinking through it in my own life. I've been a Christian now for 43 years. I added up the number of worship services I've sat through. It's over 4,000. And you think, you get bored. <laughs> I added up the number of sermons I preached. It's over 2,500. Sorry. That's a lot. And I had news for you at times. It's gotten old. Discouragement takes its toll and disillusionment takes its, its toll. And, you know, just being busy takes its toll. And sometimes you just, you just get tired. And, and you know what? You've never known, right? Because, you know, from the outside, you look like you got it all together, right? Or somewhat. Don't, don't really know. I've preached some good sermons when I shouldn't have. Don't know what's going on inside. I would like to think that getting old just automatically means more and more intimacy with God. But those two things don't necessarily go together. Just because we've been believers for a long time, doesn't mean we're mature. I like what Henry Nouwen writes about this. He says, I began to experience a deep inner threat as I entered into my 50s and was able to realize the unlikelihood of dumbling my years. I came face to face with the simple question, did becoming older bring me closer to Jesus? After 25 years of priesthood, I found myself praying poorly, somewhat isolated from other people and very much preoccupied with burning issues. Everyone was saying that I was doing really well, but something inside was telling me that my success was putting my own soul in danger. You know, that's not only a challenge personally, but it, it's a challenge for a church. And Waterstone's been at this for over 30 years. You know, and over 30 years, you get pretty good at being religious, right? We work hard around this place, right? We've hung in there during tough times. We, we, we do have standards and expectations. We want people to transform and change and grow. Man, and we're committed to truth. That's why we preach so long, right? Because it's important to us. But the question is not, are we good at religion? The question is, are we good at that relationship piece? Is it really about Jesus? Is it really about other people? You know, it's easy for churches to become institutions, and when they become institutions, the program and the organization becomes more important than the cause and the people. 
by the way, I'm all for institutions because they last and they make a, leave a legacy and they make an impact. But even institutions still have to be about the cause, the vision, and the people. They have to be about Jesus and his kingdom and loving others. So how do you know, how do you know if you walked away from the love you had at first. I think we know. <laughs> I really do. I, I think, you know, we can't lift up the hood on other people. I, I can't look at you and tell you, but you can lift up the hood on your own heart and see what's going on. You know. You know, you know there, there are markers, you know, you know when your priorities begin to change, when Jesus doesn't have the same importance to you, the same value to you, and other things creep in, you know, and not necessarily bad things, but, but career becomes more important and making progress, you know, success becomes more important and family becomes more important. Sometimes even silly things like sports or politics become more important. And yeah, Jesus is still there, but he's just kind of like the bolt-on. He, he doesn't have preeminence. Nobody really notices. And then you can see it because you begin to back off what I like to think of as radical generosity. He said, what, what does money have to do with my commitment to Jesus? Everything. Jesus says that if you want to understand your heart, look at your pocketbook because where your heart is, that's where your money is. And it's easy as you get older because you think, hey, you know, I, I made this stuff. I've worked hard for this. I, I should be able to enjoy it a little. So we're just not quite as generous. We begin to consume more on ourselves and less on the kingdom. And then we, we sometimes back off our commitment to church. And you say, what does church have to do with my relationship with Jesus? Well, everything. Don't tell me that you love Jesus if you don't love the thing that he loves most, which is his bride. You know, this notion that you can have this private and personal and individual relationship with Jesus disconnected from the rest of his body, that's American Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity because in the, in the scriptures, when you come to Christ, you are baptized into a community of faith, a church, this, this group of people who lives out the faith together. But in, in our culture, we, we like to think that church is optional. You know, if there's not something better on a Sunday morning I might go. No, it's got to be integral to our faith. Being in community. And then compassion begins to fade. Might go through the motions, but it's hard to love people who are hard to love if Jesus isn't the priority of our lives. And, you know, what happens? We get busy. Just don't have time. And we step out of those hard places. And then we get bored. So what do you do? Jesus has some strong words for this church. See him in verse 5. He says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent. And do the things you did at first. Three things he's saying there. The word for consider literally means remember. 
He's saying, I want you to think back when you first came to Jesus and the commitment you made of making him preeminent in your life. He became it for you. That's what it means to love him. I want you to remember that. And then I want you to repent. It simply means to to turn. Metanoia is the word used there. Repent, turn around, change your mind. And then he says, do the things you have done you did before return. Let me visualize it for you. It's like this is Jesus and you're walking away. He's no longer the important thing in your life. You're walking away and he said, hey, stop. Remember, remember what it was like when, when he, when life was about him? What you need to do is turn around and begin the journey back and cultivate not a religion but a relationship with him. Cultivate a relationship. My first year in college, I I spent two years at a Bible school called Biola. One of the classes I took was taught by a man named Curtis Mitchell. It was called Biblical Foundation. It was just kind of the basics of the Christian life. And in one section of that class, he, he taught something that radically changed my Christian life. He said, you know, when you come to Jesus, what you get is eternal life. And he asked the question, what is eternal life? And I said, well, you know, it's living forever in heaven. And he said, no, no, no. John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life, that you may know me. At its core, eternal life is the privilege of being in a relationship with God. And the word for know there means an intimate knowledge of. And he said, that's the challenge of the Christian life, to know God. And then he pushed it farther. He said, well, how do you know God? Well, how do you know anybody? How do you build a relationship with anyone? Simple. It's communication, right? Time, effort. And at that moment, he reframed the spiritual disciplines for me. Because I was reading my Bible because I was supposed to read my Bible. And I wanted to know what it said. And I wanted to understand truth. And I wanted, you know, I checked it off my little spiritual to-do list. And he says, no, 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 you, you misunderstand. You don't read your Bible to check it off your list and just... To get more knowledge, you read your Bible because it's at the core of this relationship, communication. You read it to become intimate. And you pray to become intimate. You do the disciplines to become intimate with him. So, Nick, are you simply saying that the way we not walk away from our love for Christ is simply by reading the scriptures and praying and doing spiritual disciplines? And I'm saying, yeah. Uh, not for their own sake, but for the sake of knowing him. Because a life of that builds intimacy with God. When I was in Guinea, I met a guy named David. David was, uh, became a believer when he was 13, 14, got kicked out of his house as junior high kid, lived on his own, uh, eventually got apprenticed to de- be a bricklayer. When I met him, he was the head of InterVarsity in Guinea. He is an amazing guy, full of wisdom and integrity and just one of those people you like to be around. We're sitting having coffee. And his wife says, I think the thing that has made a difference, the biggest difference in David's life was his commitment to the Bible. Reading it, meditating on it, praying it through over a lifetime. 
I think we're getting away from some of the basics that are so critical to our faith. Cultivating time to go intimate with God through the scriptures and prayer. It's key. It's key. And it's important. I want you to look at the warning that he gives in verse 5. He says, look, Ephesian church, if you don't repent, if you don't turn around, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to pull the plug. Developing an intimate relationship with God where we love him, keep him first, and then seeing that manifest itself in our love for other people is an optional stuff. It's key. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as the end of our service this morning. What I want to do is as the servers go, I want to give you some time to kind of lift up the hood on your life and take a hard look at your love for God and your love for others. And use this as a moment to turn around if you need to turn around, to repent if you need to repent, and commit to walking back, to giving him the proper place in your life. Take some time to reflect and wrestle um, people get in place, and when you're ready, make your way to one of the stations and participate in the blood and the body.